0: of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. He went up to the mountain and sat down. Large crowds came to him, including those who were paralyzed, blind, injured, and unable to speak, and many others. Uh, They laid them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those who had been unable to speak talking, and the paralyzed cured, and the injured walking, and the blind seen. They all praised the God of Israel. You know, it might help if I turn my mic on. Is is that better? Or doesn't it matter. <laughs> it's a small enough room. <laughs> so, how many times have we seen a scene exactly like this in the last you know month or so that we've been going through Matthew? Just in the last chapter, chapter fourteen, we've seen it twice. Matthew fourteen fourteen and Matthew fourteen thirty five have a scene basically identical to this. Jesus goes somewhere. A big crowd follows him. He heals them. Move on. People are following Jesus everywhere. There's healings everywhere. But there's something about this particular passage that I want to highlight, and it's right at the end. And they, the crowd, praised the God of Israel. This is a weird way to phrase this. And because of this way, the, the, the way this passage is phrased, this lends most scholars to the assumption that this crowd was mostly non-Jewish people. Been Jewish, you wouldn't say the God of Israel, you just wouldn't have said they praised God because it would have been their God. That would have been the normal phraseology you'd use for something like this, and was been used previously in Matthew. So because they say praise the God of Israel, the assumption is that this group is not of Israel. They normally would praise other gods. And that's big. And this assumption is doubled up because of the travel and location. So now we're gonna get into the synopsis and I made a very cool map. Well, I didn't make the map, but I made some, some graphics. And this is a very graphic-heavy message. I got way too excited about it. So go back to where we started at the very beginning. Jesus started in Nazareth, right? His hometown. He was there. He basically got kicked out. Did not go well. They ran him out. While, while there, while being run out, he finds out his cousin, John the Baptist, has died. So he goes to the far side of the Sea of Galilee to try to be alone, to try to reflect, to try to mourn. Doesn't work the crowds follow him find him there he spends the entire day teaching doing healings the end of the day he has to feed everyone so we have the the scene with the i don't i don't read really exact number what is it like two tiny biscuits and like four sardines or something and defeating the entire crowd leftovers all of that after that he sends the disciples away across the river sends the crowds away and he follows the disciples across the river walking on the water you have a scene with peter where Peter comes out, has that 10 seconds of courage, comes out, falls in the water, Jesus kind of chastises him a little bit. They finally get across. Here, they have an encounter with the Pharisees. Anna talked about a couple weeks ago. We'll get a little bit more of that later. But they have that encounter with the Pharisees talking about laws and what makes a person clean and unclean, all that. Then, they continue up north, to Tyre and Sidon, where last week we talked about the encounter with the Canaanite woman, where she displays great, amazing faith there, they come back down and are on the north shore of Galilee. Because of that transition down, the northern part of Galilee up here, mostly Gentile, mostly not Jewish. So this map here, what are some things you don't see? You don't see like Jerusalem and all that stuff. There, they'd be like way down here. They are a long way away. So Jesus is kind of up north, basically out of the country. He's not around what we would call the central hub of Judaism. He's way away from it, up into the areas of Syria, Galilee, these northern areas. Not a lot of Jewish population. Most of them we call Gentiles. So this is big. This is a change from before. Jesus is now teaching to a group of mostly Gentiles. And then what, what happens during his teaching? Well, let's move on and find out. Oh, it's It is slightly off. we will fix that next time. Now, Jesus called his disciples and said, I feel sorry for the crowd, because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry for fear that they won't have enough strength to travel. Probably traveling back up north. His disciples replied, Where are we going to get enough food in this wilderness to satisfy such a big crowd? Jesus said, How much bread do you have? They responded, Seven loaves and a few fish. He told the crowd to sit on the ground, took the seven loaves of bread and the fish. After giving thanks, he broke them into pieces and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Everyone ate until they were full. The disciples collected seven baskets full of leftovers. Four thousand men ate, plus women and children. After dismissing the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came along to the region of Magdalene. This is basically identical to the, feeding, the mass feeding a couple weeks ago, right? It, beat by beat, follows the same thing. Jesus has compassion on the crowd. The disciples try to think of a rational way to do it, a practical way to do <clears> it. <throat> Jesus takes what little food is available, multiplies it, gives it to everyone. They recover a lot of leftovers. So the big question becomes, why do we have these two stories? And especially, why do we have these two stories so close to each other? If you look at some of the other Gospels, some of them don't include both stories. Some of them only include one, or the other, or they're in different orders. That's a whole other discussion. But what we want to look at today is why does Matthew, why does this particular author include both feeding stories and include them so close together? What is different about this one that it's worth including right after the other one? crowd. The crowd is the key difference here. The composition of the crowd. Last time, it was mostly a Jewish crowd. This time, it's mostly a Gentile crowd. This is really, really big. This marks a shift in Jesus' ministry. This marks this great kind of parallel thing I'm going to lay out here in a second. Jewish poetry and literature has an, an element into it called ring theory. Um, There's a great book called Thinking in Rings, if you're interested in it, I can can send it to you. It's a really cool idea, and it has nothing to do with the creepy girl down the well that comes out. Nothing like that! It's, It's parallel thought. So it's the idea that you have line A, line A prime, line B, line B prime, line C, line C prime, line D. Line A and A prime are the same thing. You know, they kind of form this circular ring. We have that going on in these two chapters. So let's go through and talk about it. That's what you're right here. So we start in verses fourteen, in chapter fourteen, verses thirteen through twenty-one, with the healing and feeding. This is the first healing and feeding we have as most of the Jewish audience. This is the one where Jesus was trying to get away, trying to be alone. Crowds following him. Healing, feeding. Next, we have an example of faith. This is Jesus and Peter. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter comes out, has that. Ten seconds of courage where he jumps out and then loses faith. And Jesus kind of yells at Peter a little bit of, How can you have such little faith? So we have a story highlighting the faith of someone. Then we have his encounter with the Pharisees, the beginning of 15. Here, Jesus discusses the idea of cleanliness versus uncleanliness. That it is it's not necessarily defined by circumstance, but by our hearts. It's our hearts that make us clean or unclean. And and, and we'll get back to this, because as you'll see, this is going to be the key point of this entire reign, is this, this encounter with the Pharisees. Moving forward, we have another encounter, an example of faith. Jesus with the Canaanite woman. This example, Jesus praises her faith. and talks about how she has great faith, compared to Peter, who Jesus chastised for a lack of faith. And then we end up down here with a second example of healing and feeding, this time with a Gentile crowd. So you can see the top part of our arc here is Jesus' encounters with a Jewish audience. The first healing and feeding, Jewish audience, Peter, disciples, Jewish audience. Then we have this encounter with Pharisees, and we repeat everything that happened down here with a Gentile audience the Canaanite woman. Gentile prayer. So, why did I make this chart? Why? What is going on here? This is an incredibly tangible way of driving the idea home that Jesus' message is for everyone. Remember, as we jump back to chapter 10, Jesus says, you know, don't go to to, to the Canaanites. Stay here. Stay to the lost flock of Israel. That's what we're called to. We see that shit happening here. This is a very practical way of seeing Oh, it's not what, it's not just collected for just the Jewish audience. It's for everyone. Jesus' message is for everyone. And it's this encounter with the Pharisees that really highlights that. Because one of the main things that gets talked about there is it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. The idea being, it's your heart that makes you unclean. Not your personage. Not what you eat. Not where you are. It's your heart. Highlighting this idea that the bread of life is for everyone. It's not just for the lost fly of Israel. The bread of life is for everyone, and not just crumbs that fall from the master's table, as the Canaanite woman talked about. This is the bread of life directly given by Jesus, intended for each person that's hearing it, intended for the Gentile audience. This is Jesus' Directly giving the bread of life. So what, what does that make you think about that? Salvation is for everyone and anyone. It's not excluded based on your personage, race, location, action, anything like that. And that flies in the face of the religious establishment. At the time. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, even the essenes the main power groups, that is not what they want to hear. And As we'll see, honestly, in the very next section, that kind of comes to a head. The establishment takes notice of what Jesus is doing, extending God's grace to everyone. They don't like that. So what does this mean for us, for us here today? Well, there's just two kind of takeaways from this. For us, on the receiving end, it means no matter what we have done, God loves us. And God is offering forgiveness. This means that any one of us, any person, can receive the gift of salvation. Not just those raised in a church. Not just those with an amazingly powerful conversion story not just someone who can quote tons of scripture, or someone who has lived a holy life. It's for us who lie, and cheat, steal, and sin. It's for all of us. There is nothing you can do to make yourself so bad, so whatever in the eyes of God, that you are not worthy of his forgiveness. You are not worthy of his grace. So that's the receiving end. What about the other side of it? We as Christians, Christian literally means the Christ, we're called to emulate Christ. So how can we emulate Christ in this aspect? (coughs) We can't limit our love to those who look, act, or think like us. We can't say, well, I can't be friends with that person, you know, because they're Muslim. I can't be friends with them. We can't say, you know, I don't really think we should partner with this organization because they're not Christian-based. They're not based out of a church. I don't think we should partner with them. We can't say, well, that person should have really thought about that before they did whatever that caught them in a situation. If we jump in and help them, we'll only be... Harboring will only be fostering the same attitude for next time. We can't say that. Jesus' message landed the most with people who were unlike him. Because remember, the people who were most like Jesus, the people he grew up with, the people in his hometown, kicked him out. Ran him out of town, rejecting his message. So what did Jesus do? He went. he went up north. He went to where the other was. And what did he find there? More faith than was seen in his own disciples. He had to go to find faith. Now, there have been countless studies done over the past 10 plus years, some by Barna, some by the Pew Research Group, and looking at the idea of. Why is church attendance declining? Why are people, less and less people, saying they're Christians? We've talked about this before, so can you guess what the number one answer almost always is? It's us. Christians are the number one reason people don't want to come to church. Because they see us as judgmental. They see us as insular. They see us as we're better than you. Our help isn't for you. I've personally seen this play out here in Bonham. If you recall, you it's Thanksgiving time again, so we're not quiet, but getting close, as weird as it sounds. So we're gonna have you know, another round of families, hopefully, that we're gonna try to sponsor for Thanksgiving dinner. We did this last year. One of the families go and drop off food it was a Sikh family. And they were dumbfounded that a Christian church would provide food. It took a lot of convincing for them to believe i was a christian pastor bringing food to them because they're like that's not what you do you take care of christians why would you help us that hasn't been our experience our experience has been being shut down by christians being belittled by christians that's what most people think of us that's what most people think of christians are So how do we change that? How do we change that? And we have to change that. We can't sit back and say, well, that that will eventually change and then we'll, we'll figure out how to jump in. And what's gonna change, it has to be with us. So how do we love someone differently this week? How do we love someone different than us this week? Is it a conversation? Is it coffee? Isn't listening. Honestly, listening is one of the most powerful things we can do. Hearing the stories of other people, hearing what people have gone through, just being an ear for even what the church or Christians have done to people. That's the majority of my conversations they start with when they find out how a pastor,
1: well, let me tell
0: you what the church has done to me. And it's not to they're defending, it's just listening being open to hearing people's stories, starting to build friendships, starting to build relationships. To the point that you could answer this question honestly, someone in the Maroochee family needed help. Of course, we'd rally help, right? Can we say the same thing for a complete stranger, someone we might not even like? Could we say we would rally the same way? should be able to say that. That's our goal, to work toward being able to say that. We have to change the perception of who Christians are. Because Christians should be little Christ, right? Should be emulating Christ in every way. And the perception and the history of what we've done is not doing that. This is something that's going to be hard but it's something that is 100% in following the footsteps of Christ. It's something that Jesus 100% did. It's something we have to do as well. It's something we're called to do as well. We want to open the table to everyone. We can't try to restrict who comes to the table. Remember last week, the disciples tried to do that. Try to tell the Canaanite woman, no, this table's not for you. Jesus didn't love.